it. Well, first off, I want to thank many of you who last week, whether in conversations or text messages or phone calls, um, offered me some encouragement and some feedback from last week's sermon. Um, it was very humbling and very overwhelming, uh, but I, I, I don't preach for the feedback or the encouragement, but it's appreciated when it, when it comes. Um, so thank you for that. Um, today, we're going to do something a little bit different, and we're going to be spending most of our time together this morning in the book of John, specifically chapter 11. Resurrection is one of those themes that stands out in both the Old and the New Testament. And, and today, I, I hope that we can together uncover some of what Jesus meant by the things that he said, by the emphasis that we see on this specific topic in Old and New Testament. And we're going to be reading 45 verses this morning. Um, so that's what I say. We're going to be doing something a little bit differently. Um, and I decided not to make a slide for every single verse. Um, so we're going to be taking this in chunks. But if you would like to follow along, please go ahead and grab a Bible or your phone or tablet, or there might be a Bible app waiting for you, because we're going to be looking at a lot of verses. And so since we have a lot to read, let's just go ahead and dive right in. John chapter 11, and we'll start with verses 1 through 6. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha, sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Pretend that you're just reading this story for the first time. Very first time. You don't know where this is going. Those last two lines are quite striking, aren't they? <laughs> um, we're, we're told that Jesus loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And because of that, when he hears that Lazarus is gravely ill, he waits around for a few days before he goes and visits them. <laughs> this is very interesting. But we must remember, we can't skip over verse 4, right? Which lets us know that Jesus is aware that there is more to the circumstance here. There's something else going on. Continuing, into verses 7 through 10. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world, but if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. 
another interesting set of verses. They remind me of Isaiah chapter 60. It starts off, arise, shine, for your light has come. I heard it. I heard it, Virginia. And I I think that Paul feels the same. I think Paul makes the same connection because in Ephesians 5, while also talking about light and darkness, he also quotes, quotes from Isaiah. Isaiah 26 and Isaiah 60. Jesus is speaking resurrection language here. His disciples just don't know it yet. Continuing into verses 11 through 16, these things he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. This sounds like a Peter quote, doesn't it? (laughs) Impulsive. So we, we see here, though, that the disciples are starting to get it. They're starting to pick up what Jesus is talking about. Could Jesus be making allusions to this concept known as being born again? Thomas seems to think so. But at this point, Jesus stops talking and starts walking. Picking up at verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been, Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is to come into the world. It's interesting that Martha believes that Jesus has the ability to raise her brother from the dead. She believes that he can do that in the resurrection to come on the last day, but she's a little unsure of what he can do right now. Jesus says that he is the resurrection and the life. He wants Martha to believe in him. And she says she does. 
Verse 28, and when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, she is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35 simply says, Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? So to anybody on the outside looking in, it seems as if Jesus is too late. Lazarus is four days dead. He's laid up in the tomb. The mourners have come. And both Mary and Martha have voiced their frustrations with Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. All this death, sadness, and hopelessness It was breaking Jesus' heart. And once he made it to the grave, he couldn't take the heaviness any longer. The Bible tells us that Jesus wept. Now concerning this, which is actually the shortest verse in all of the Bible, I recently heard a presentation by Pastor David Asherick where he said this, If all we knew about God was that he cried, we would know everything we needed to. I agree with that. As the epicenter of emotion itself, Jesus experiences all the feelings of the world. Thus, the act of getting to know him is a journey into feeling more deeply and more acutely the feelings of the world. It's not easy, but I do believe it is vitally rehumanizing. I believe a strong relationship with Jesus is the key to emotional health and empathy. It was the love of Christ for humanity that caused him to weep. He felt the sadness in all the people around him. And he knew in his heart of hearts, this is not not how it should be. This was not the original plan. Picking back up verse 38, then Jesus again groaning in himself came to the tomb It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, 
Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who were standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. Now, I want to make a comment, and I've preached on this before, but I believe that it's important. It's important to keep repeating. Jesus had all the power and all the authority to use supernatural forces to move away that stone, right? We believe that. Yet instead, he gave the people that were there, the people that were around, the opportunity to get involved with the miracle that he was about to work. God doesn't want to do everything in our lives, nor does he want us to do everything in our lives. God is calling us into a partnership with him. A partnership. Yes, there are things in this life and in our personal lives that can only be conquered through the power of God. But there are also actions and choices that we can make, and I believe that he expects us to make those when we can. Another part of this story that I love is the fact that Jesus used Lazarus' name when he called him forth. He used his name. And I've heard it said that the reason Jesus did this was because there was so much power in his words that if he didn't make this command clear to who he was speaking to, if he just said, come forth, then all the dead folks and all those graves around would come out of their graves, answering the call. <laughs> I like that. I, I, I agree with that sentiment. The power of the word of God. So Lazarus comes forth. And again, Jesus gives the command for the people that are around, the people that are watching to help, to play a role in this miracle. Lazarus is wrapped in the grave clothes and Jesus says, "Loose him and let him go." Jesus is making it clear that humanity is to cooperate with divinity. Humanity is to cooperate with divinity. Now, I want to take a few moments and, and take a little side street in this story because this is also a thought that has always popped into my mind whenever I read John 11. I'm sure that we're probably all aware that when it comes to the, the, uh, the topic 
of what happens after a person dies, that there's a lot of confusion in the world, right? A lot of different ideas, a lot of, a lot of different concepts out there. And even within the smaller confines of Christianity, there's a lot of confusion on this matter, right? Most Christians believe that when a person dies, they immediately go to heaven or go to hell, right? That, that's, the, that's the common understanding that most people have, most Christians have. But I want to share something with y'all, with y'all that you might not hear at, at some of the other churches in the area, I believe that a lot of the confusion on this specific topic comes from the very first lie ever told on this planet. Do you remember that lie from the Garden of Eden? Genesis 3, 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. I find it fascinating that the first lie ever told to humanity was about the subject of death. There's a hint of immortality to this cunning serpent's words, right? You will not surely die. Luckily, I I think that a better understanding of how we received life to begin with can help us get some clarity on how things go when that life is ended. Also in the garden, we find this event. Genesis 2, 7, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Some versions say a living soul. I love that. God spoke everything in this world into existence. It's it's the power of the word of God. But when it came to humanity, he slowed down. He took his time. He got down on his knees. He got close. He got down in the dirt and formed the first human being from the dust of the earth. He drew near enough to breathe the breath of life into Adam's lungs. I find it's helpful to look at this thing as a bit of a a math problem, a math equation. So dust or body plus breath of life or spirit equals a human being or a living soul. That's the the simple math problem. One plus one equals two. (laughs) If you remove the body, you are left with just the breath of God. If you remove the the breath of God, the breath of life, then you're left with nothing but a corpse that eventually returns to the dust from whence it came. Either way, if one of the vital elements is removed, you no longer have a human being or a living soul. When talking about this breath of life or spirit, there's also been some confusion around that and what it actually means, what it actually is. The Bible does say that it returns to God upon our dying. But the Bible also makes it pretty clear that this is not talking about any form of human consciousness. Ecclesiastes 9, 5, and 6, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. 
They have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also, their love and their hatred and their envy, it's perished. Kaput, no longer there. Never more will they have a share in anything done under the sun. Well, Lazarus maybe is speaking up and saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> but all, all the memories, all the emotions, all of these things that make us human, they stop when a person dies. And Jesus in himself, Jesus himself in this chapter that we are studying today, John 11, he refers to death as being like a deep, dreamless sleep. Though it is fairly common belief within Christianity, the Bible does not teach that a person goes straight to heaven or hell upon dying. Instead, on numerous occasions, we are told that the body rests in the grave until the second coming, when Christ will raise us up and give us back that breath of life, breathe his spirit into us. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we will always be with the Lord. You'll find no talk within the Bible of an immortal soul or consciousness after death. In fact, the only time that immortality is talked about in the Bible, it's connected with God. Like 1 Timothy 1.17 that says, Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God alone is immortal. God alone is immortal. Now, the reason I bring all this up is because when I've read this story, I've always had this particular thought. If Lazarus, upon death, really did go to heaven, like so many Christians want to believe, a place of bliss with no sin, no pain, sadness, or death, wouldn't he have been pretty upset, pretty mad at Jesus for bringing him back to this sinful, dark, dingy earth? But that's not what happens. Everybody's overjoyed at this. So for those Christians that may believe in an immortal soul, that question might give them something to chew on. So back to the story. What are we to learn from this? John, in writing this story down, what was he hoping we would learn? The Holy Spirit in leading John to write this down. What was God's hope that we as Christians in the 21st century reading this story, what did he want us to learn? How is this miracle relevant to us as Christians awaiting the soon coming of Jesus? It's because Jesus is our blessed hope. Jesus is our blessed hope. He is the reason we look forward to the second coming. He is the reason we can have assurance of salvation. He is the reason we can look forward to life and life eternal. He's the reason we no longer have to have fear of death. 
Because Jesus himself says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. You know, when someone has the keys to a certain building, a certain place, that means they're in control, right? The enemy tried to snuff Jesus out, right? Put him in the grave, but Jesus wouldn't stay in the grave. And because of that, we can all shout together, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? Death is a defeated foe, a defeated foe. It's here for a time, but we as the children of God can know that it's not going to be with us for eternity. When all is made right, we can look forward to this. Revelation 21.4, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Dear friends, death won't just be defeated. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. It will be destroyed, it will perish, it will be annihilated. And we will be given new bodies we will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. Remember that trumpet from 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17? It's so loud, it's gonna wake the dead. It will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. This is the plan that God has in store for his children. This is the plan God wants you to believe in. This, I believe, is what John was trying to get us to understand in the story of the raising of Lazarus. This was the hope and the comfort that Jesus wasn't just offering to Lazarus and his friends and family in that moment, but was offering to all of us as we read about this miracle. Will you believe in him? Will you accept him? Will you love him? I hope so. And if you will, then when it's all said and done, when this great controversy has ended, we can all stand together joyously proclaiming the truth that Jesus wins. Jesus wins. I'm gonna invite Rex Shepherd. Good timing, Rex. To come forward and stand at the foot of the steps. He's our elder in charge for today. And we're going to have the benediction, and those of you who wish can be dismissed. But if there's anybody here that has any special needs, that has any specific burdens, something's weighing you down, please come talk with us. Come talk with Rex. Come talk to myself. I'll be waiting down here. We'd love to pray with you, we'd love to listen and go together to the throne of God. Let us pray. Our loving, gracious, heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for all that you've done. We have so much to be thankful for. 
And for various reasons, we don't always see it. But Lord, right now in this moment, we wanna thank you for Jesus. We wanna thank you for his resurrection power. Not just for the child of the widow of Nain, not for Jairus's child, not just for Lazarus, but also the fact that he went through death. He rose again, and he has promised that that will be our experience as well as children of God. May we always be thankful for that. May we always thank you for that. And may this thankfulness in our hearts lead to an overabundance, an outflowing of the love and the grace that you have shared with us. May we share that with others. Lord, you've given us all good news to share. And through your Holy Spirit, you've given us the ability to share it. So Lord, as we go through this week, give us moments, give us times to be thankful for, for, to you and, and for you and to voice those things, but also give us opportunities to share with others, to help others, and to be light and salt here in this community. Lord, we give it all to you. We thank you for giving your life to us. And now we give our lives to you. We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen, amen.